This is season one of Betting On It, an eight episode series where we follow one betting industry startup on its journey to raise seed capital. Betting On It is brought to you by GeoComply, who provides fraud prevention and cybersecurity solutions that detect location fraud and help verify a user's true digital identity. Trusted by leading brands and regulators for the past 10 years, their geolocation solutions are installed on over 400 million devices and analyze over a billion transactions every month. To learn more, visit www.geocomply.com. All right, we are up to episode number three of Betting On It. And if you've listened to the first two episodes in this series, you'll know that the topic of gamification has come up in both of them. So for this one, we're going to go deep on the topic. And to help us navigate it, we're thrilled to welcome the world's leading gamification expert, Yukai Chow, an author and international keynote speaker on gamification and behavioral design. He's the author of the book, Actionable Gamification, and the founder of the Octalysis Group, as well as Metablocks. His design work has empowered over 1 billion users' experiences, and he was rated number one amongst top 100 gamification gurus in the world. Yukai, thanks so much for joining us. How's everything going with you today? It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, things are great. I'm in uh, Asia right now, so now it's midnight, 12, 11, but uh, I guess this is my favorite midnight meeting of the week, I'll say. <laughs> well, we extra appreciate you joining us given the hour. So, you know, we are super excited to have you with us, as I said. And of course, once again, we welcome back the subjects of this season of Betting On It, Drew and Sahil from Bets Booster. Guys, we're going to follow the same playbook as the last episode, whereby I hand the reins over to you both for the next 25 or so minutes to discuss everything gamification with Yukai. But before I mute myself for the rest of the episode, I'd like to open with one question for Yukai. Uh, Yukai, if you will. Gamification is one of those words that most listeners of this podcast will have heard before, but it might not necessarily be well understood. So it'd be awesome as a starting point today, if you could provide the audience with your working definition of gamification. So I like to stick with uh, simple definitions. So to gamify is literally to make something game-like. So make something more like a game. Now, the interpretation comes of what does that mean? What does it mean to make something more like a game? And basically, first of all, it's usually taking something that's not a game, something that's important or useful, and but potentially mundane or boring, and you add game elements to make it fun and exciting. So a lot of times you gamify healthcare, education, finance, sometimes things that are very, very competitive, like retail or uh, insurance, you know, just you need to differentiate stand out. And uh, some people see gamification as just putting some points or game elements to make it more exciting. But in my whole world, it's just as long as you make it fun, exciting, engaging, that people really want to do this activity, that's gamification. That sounds like a great definition to me. We'll transition that into the uh, first question I've got for you here. Charlie Munger has a concept he calls a Lollapalooza effect, which is when three or four psychological forces all act in the same direction at the same time and compound one another. If we wanted to engineer a Lollapalooza effect within our app for our single most important action, which three or four behavioral design mechanics would you combine to get the most important or the most potent effect and why, I suppose? Yeah, that's a very, it's almost like a funny word. Lola Palooza. Do you know where that word even comes from? I haven't researched it, no. Yeah, yeah. Just pronouncing it is, is funny, but uh, yeah, I think it's often use, useful to study various forces and when they merge together, it's like what I studied before is exponential curves. And I'm like, well... If two or three exponential trends are working together, uh, then that industry is just on fire, right? So, so I think here we're talking about psychological forces. And uh, 
For those who don't know, I'm known for this Octalysis framework that breaks down all human motivation, these eight core drives. So everything we do is based on one or more of these eight core drives, which means that if the, there's none of these eight, there's zero motivation. Those things like epic meaning and calling, you're doing something because you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Or ownership possession, you're, improve, you're protecting what you own or getting more of it. Social influence and scarcity. So there's these eight core drives. And so we could go from the angle of, okay, what are the three or four important core drives to drive certain desired behavior? Or we could go to be more tactical, which is what are the little strategies? You know, should it be like a group quest structure or like an Easter egg structure? But I think the first thing to answer that question is to also understand when you say for your single most important action, what is that action that you want to want to motivate? Uh, I think at least initially in the app, that's going to be referring people. So like, like you just mentioned with exponential growth, if we can sort of push the snowball down the hill and start getting viral growth, that's going to be important within the next, let's say, year or so. Real quick, let me ask a clarification question. Do you mean the core action as in like what the app is about or the core thing outside the central part of what the app is about that we want them to do? Let's say within the app. So we have a, an experience or a flow that leads to people referring someone else within the app. Yeah. And I think referral is a very common action. So the framework is called the octalysis because it's also graphical octagon shape. So these eight core drives being each leg of the octagon. And there's different natures of these core drives. There's what we call white hat motivation versus black hat motivation. White hat making people feel powerful in control. They feel good, but there's no sense of urgency. So they procrastinate. And then black hat motivation core drives, which uh, makes people feel urgent, obsessed, sometimes addicted. But in the long run, if that's the only motivator, they feel like they're not in control of their own behavior and they burn out. And there's also what we call left versus right brain core drives on the left versus right of the octagon. Left brain being extrinsic motivation, things you do for a reward, a purpose, or a goal. But you don't necessarily enjoy the activity itself. So once you obtain the reward and hit your goals or the reward becomes stale, you stop doing that activity. Whereas the right brain core drives deal with intrinsic motivation, where these are things we just enjoy doing to the point where even willing to spend money just to experience it. And so when we think about referral, right? Referral is relatively high friction. So there, first, there's, first of all, a lot of times people just don't want, they don't have the intention to referrals and to do referrals. And, and so you can use all sorts of tricks and tricks in the book to try to do it. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't want my friends to use this. Right. And so the first thing is to get them to be passionate about the app itself. And that's the core drive one epic median calling. If you make them feel like by participating in the app experience, they're part of something bigger than themselves. That's great. So if you look at any apps that deals with like their religion or their, their, the politics or even things that they, that they're crazy about, like Tesla, right? Then they have this higher meaning and purpose, like, oh, this is something bigger than myself. And then they have intentions to share. Now, again, they might not actually go do referrals because this is why I have motivation. They want to do it, but there's no urgency. They're like, oh, I, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. And I never get to it. So when it comes to your app, I think you, you are, you build that epic median calling in the form of, you know, people are crazy about the teams that they're fans of, right? It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> when you look at the world cup, it's talks about like, you know, when, when it's some, when their team performs poorly, the whole country's in riot, right? And so, so there's that epic median calling there. So now that establishes people's intention for it. And then you set up left rank board drives, which is more of that incentive. So it's like, hey, if you refer you will get something, right? It's, and we create extrinsic motivation justification. 
Uh, sometimes you have an experience that's amazingly enjoyable. You have a lot of right brain core drive. Like if people touch it, they'll fall in love with it because it's so much fun. But then there's no justification. They're like, no, I'm okay. I don't want to try it. It's like, no, no, just keep, just, just try it. It's like, no, I'm busy. So you need some kind of extrinsic motivation to hook them and say, hey, but uh, if you if you try it out, you have a chance to win a free iPad. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, let me try it out. Or hey, you have a chance to get a certificate or a degree. Or hey, you'll you'll check off something off your bucket list, right? These are all extrinsic motivations. So you want to think about what is that extrinsic hook for people to refer. And a lot of times it's cash, but when you think about rewards, you think about things, the acronym called SAPS, status, access, power, stuff. Okay, so have the right type of incentive there. We can dig deeper into that later. I'm just drawing the big picture here. Then you want the right breakboard drive, intrinsic motivation, and that's going to be in social influence and relatedness. Because when you're referring people, it's a, it's automatically a social experience, right? And you want to have them say, hey, I'm not just spamming you, telling you to join. We can play this game together. It, it's actually a better game when we do it together and collaboratively or sometimes competitively as friends. And so you want to set that scene there. So now there's a reason to invite your friends because you want them to be part of the experience and you want your group to be bigger and grow and stronger. You want your friends on the platform to meet your friends that are not on the platform. So that's intrinsically enjoyable. People like to spend time. And then finally, we introduce the black hat components, which are, you know, things like scarcity, loss and bonus. Like, hey, you have one hour to refer to get these bonuses. If you don't, you'll lose that opportunity. And so that creates that urgency. So I think once you have these quote unquote three or four forces to drive that behavior referral, then you'll see a lot more people uh, ready to refer their friends. And they're also more, it's more compelling that their friends will join. So let me just say that back to make sure that I understood. You're saying, A, uh, imbue the app with epic meaning so that the people feel like there's, you know, they're part of something bigger than themselves. B, set it up so that the app is actually fun for them to intrinsically use. C, uh, uh, intrinsically with, with people, with friends, social influence. Well, that, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like one, they have to love the app for themselves, but then next you have to make it so that the collaborative elements actually add to that gameplay. Um, and mm -hmm. then you add the black hat core drive to, to push them so that they actually get something if they refer them on a time schedule. Is that a yes, okay. So, so the B, because you then the social influence is the C, right? The B is actually exactly. setting up the right incentive structure. And like I said, the status access power of stuff. It could be if you refer a lot of people, you have a lot of status. You really, really, if you refer a lot of people, you have access to, you know, uh, early tips and insights, or you get to bet earlier than others. You get to see something, you know, a minute before everyone else does, or early features. Power, like everyone has one vote, but you have two votes because you're, you're a proven member of the community and then stuff, which is like uh, extra discounts, free shipping, or, you know, someone will match your bed or whatnot. So yeah, so those are, those are what you want to think in terms of incentive structures. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it's basically a roadmap for us. So thank you for that format. <laughs> that, yes, for three to four, I gave you three to four. So <laughs> love it. All right. Next question. Uh, another behavioral design aspect where Octalysis and Charlie Munger agree is variable rewarding. That is, a behavior that is rewarded in an unpredictable fashion is strengthened more so than if it was rewarded consistently. Is there an upper limit to how much of this is effective? In other words, can you overdo it? Or is it more effective to scope this to only high value actions within an app? Yeah, so variable rewards is interesting because it's a combination between Core Drive 7, unpredictability and curiosity, 
a core drive for ownership and session. So it's basically ownership is getting a reward and that unpredictability is making it variable unpredictable. And because it's unpredictable, it creates usual delightful surprises and it's more exciting. You know, it's the gambling core drive in the brain, like you're pulling the slot machine bar. However, there are limitations because you really want to design your reward schedule well and the probabilities. So uh, there's a few type of uh, structures on, on rewards, right? There's the context. There's what we call the fixed action reward. I call the earn lunch. So the user knows what they need to do to get the reward and they know what the reward is. So if the reward is appealing, they will do the desired behavior and get it. But they're not super excited because they feel like they've earned it, they deserve it, and they get it, and that's it. And then there's what we call the mystery box design, which are basically, you know what you need to do to get the reward, but you don't know what the reward is. So it's like opening a treasure chest or killing a monster in the game. Something random shows up or drops. And well, we can talk about this. The literature about mystery box design is that people are willing to do small commitments to see what they get. Uh, and it's exciting and fun because it satisfies the curiosity, but they're not willing to draw out commitments or pay a lot of money to find out because uh, it might not be good, right? So if you do all this work and then it ends up being not a great reward, then you feel pretty sad about it. And then there's what we Easter egg design, so sudden rewards, where not only do you not know what the reward is, you don't even know what you need to do to get it. So you're just doing you know, your regular activities and suddenly, boom, the reward shows up. And because it's so unexpected, it creates the maximum amount of delight and uh, it makes people want to go back and do those actions again to see if they can reproduce the results. Makes them want to tell their friends about it and their friends might want to sign up. So, so as you can see from how I described it, usually the Easter egg experience is the best. However, it's also contextual because you assume people will get to the point to trigger that Easter egg, right? So if no one ever gets to that milestone, then it doesn't matter if you have a million Easter eggs. It just never triggers like you have nothing. So if no one gets to the milestone, you rather have a fixed action reward. Say, hey, work hard to get to the milestone. We'll give you a reward. Or, hey, you know, work hard, get to the milestone, and we'll give you like a, tr a treasure chest and something cool might be in it. But if a lot of people are getting to that milestone, but then they drop out soon after, that's the perfect moment for Easter egg and make them feel excited so they keep going. And there's other things like lottery design. There's like uh, collection sets and social treasure and all those things. But uh, when it comes to variable rewards, those are what we want to think about. If the reward is always exciting, there's always that unpredictable delight. And whenever they open it, it's like, wow, this is such a cool reward. Then generally you, you cannot overdo it. It's always just like watching amazing TV shows. You just are amazing movie. It's not like, oh, I've already watched 20 amazing movies. I hate movies now, right? You just want to watch more amazing movies because they're all unpredictable and delightful. But when it becomes less and less unpredictable, so it's like, oh, I'm kind of seeing the same movie script written like 20 different ways. Like, I don't want to watch the 21st one because it's like, I already know what's going to happen. It's the same, it's the same theme. Then that becomes boring. And then in that sense, you overdo it. Also, if the reward is not good, then people obviously figure it out like, oh, well, it, it, keeps, it keeps promising to be something cool, but nine out of 10 times, something really lame. So, so I don't like it. So you, you need to have a really rich reward structure to constantly give people like vibrant good rewards based on their desired actions. So that's, that's how you potentially overdo it. That makes sense. You can't really overdo it, but you can maybe do it wrong in a couple of different ways. Yeah, you can do it badly. Yeah. Um, so a follow-up question. I'm curious how this interacts with like the sort of leveling desire, because in a sense, that's a fixed reward. 
uh, you know, you, you do X amount of things and you gain a level and now you unlock whatever. Um, is that sort of considered to be an earned reward in this context? Yeah, or it's is like it earned lunch. So, so most of the time when people put in labor, they do want some kind of surety that assures that they at least get something. So generally speaking, when you play a game and you, you do any desired behavior, right? Like planting a plan or killing a monster or whatnot, you gain this very predictable you know, experience points. And so as long as you're laboring, you're spending time, that grows. And then when you hit certain milestones, suddenly there's a variable running. Oh, you open a treasure chest. Oh, something drops. So that's when people feel like their, again, quote unquote, their labor is well spent because they know they get something for sure. It's reliable. It grows over time. And then there's the, the chance stuff that could be exciting. Now that sometimes we also divide it by labor drivers, performance driven. So it's like, uh, share a thousand photos that's labor driven, but then get a thousand likes for your photos is performance driven. Like you could share one photo or, uh, and it's amazing and you get a million likes or you could share a thousand photos and it all sucks and get zero likes and you never, you never get the reward. So generally speaking, because most people aren't lucky technically, and most people are not high performing, it's useful to have this earn lunch thing where it's like, as long as they're doing stuff, they're accumulating, but there are certain points in time where if they show high skill or if they show, if, if they're lucky, they get like something nice or, or powerful and they, and, and that really is the highlight of the experience. And when we think about fixed action rewards, we also want to make sure that it paces well at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of momentum. It's going pretty fast. You're leveling up like two or three times on the first day. And then unless you have infinite levels, which is really hard to design, you know, later on, it, it probably should slow down. Like it might take three months to get to a next level, but because you're in the experience for so long, you're really driven by all the other things around. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. We've thought a lot about potential adding in some kind of leveling system, but we haven't really spent nearly as much time thinking about variable rewards. So that gives us a lot to think about in that context. Yeah, uh, usually the best is uh, leveling up allows you to either be luckier or more powerful. So even if you had no skill, uh, you, as long as you keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, you don't give up, you will have uh, uh, an edge at one point. So here's an example. Let's say you have three times a day to make a bet, right? You can make three bets a day to see if you, if you're, if you score well or not. Then some people score well and that's great. They win, but there's people who just are not good at this stuff and they just keep losing, but they keep coming back as long as they keep betting, even if they lose, they're, they're getting EXP, they level up and suddenly they have four bets a day and they have five bets and they have six bets a day. So, so now they have six chances to be lucky or to be, to show skill, right? So that means the longer they stay on the platform, the more advantage they have and the more they would they're likely to stay on the platform, right? Because if they go to a new platform, they're, they're going back to the base user level, level one again. And chances are the other platform doesn't even have leveling up. But here they spend like six months building up a stronger profile. So that's a lot of sunk costs. You don't want to lose that. So they're going to keep building that, that profile. So that's, that's, you have more bets, but it could also be, you know, you get, as you level up, you get a 10% booster bonus and then a 12%, 14, 16. So now compared to the noobs, you get 20% more by doing the same actions. So, so yeah, things, things like that, where your labor driven stuff empowers your performance driven stuff. That's usually the best design in, in many scenarios.
uh, connect a few dots here uh, for a follow-up. So in the context of a um, referral flow through the app, the performance would be how many people you refer and the labor would be for potentially how many posts you make on social media, for example, in order to get those people. So how would you recommend rewarding for those two things? Uh, yeah. So, so in that structure, it's like, Hey, every time you post on social, and, and this is only if you want to set a specific leveling system just for referrals and nothing else, it's probably good to have a holistic system, but it's like every time they post on social media and, and you don't want them to just, just randomly spam a bunch of fake accounts. Right. So you probably put a limit, like you can do it once every 12 hours. Uh, I mean, you can do it as much as you want, but you only get credit for once every 12 hours, which the scarcity design actually motivates people to come in, come in every 12 hours, like two times a day. So it's, it's actually pretty nice there. So you can only do it every 12 hours and then you get EXP helps you level up. And if people convert from that, you get some kind of referral bonus, right? But if you're a high level, that referral bonus is higher. So I don't know what bonus you're giving out, but let's just say it's cash, right? So at the beginning, if you successfully refer someone, you get $20, but then you've just been inviting a lot of people. You'd be, you'd be you know, sending a lot of social messages. And so at one point you level up and you get $25 and there's a conversion and then 30. And so now because they built up like a bigger reward, if they successfully refer someone, now they're on top of it, right? Now they're like, oh, wow, like it'll be a waste if I don't use this booster. So now they're actually calling up their friends saying, hey, sign up to this. Come on, like should do this because they don't want to waste their, their, their high level profile, basically. And it's important that they built their self up. If you just suddenly say, hey, we're, we're, we're feeling generous. We'll just give you like 50% more uh, or, you know, $5 more, whatever, right? Get $5 more. They're like, oh, I don't care. Like, sure, but I'm busy. But if they actually labored and they built themselves up to that point, then it'll feel like all their turmoils are, are meaningless if they don't successfully refer someone. So they're going to work harder for that. All right. Uh, let's connect a few more dots here. Uh, we've spoken before on how the gambling space is dominated by black hat incentives, such as Core Drive 7. And um, you, you've gone into some detail here, but I want to focus on the white hat incentives, specifically epic meaning and calling. And our uh, overarching vision for this is that a lot of sports fans will use language like we when they talk about their favorite teams. So in their own head, they are a part of that team. And that's the sentiment we really want to capture in our experience to provide that white hat angle. So I'd love it if you could uh, speak to some strategies there. All right, just a quick break to let you know that on May 8th, GeoComply and City will be launching their Challenger Series New York City Summit, where some of gaming's best and brightest will be together under one roof. From compliance, product, payments, fundraising, and more, they will be sharing the hacks, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. So if you're an iGaming operator looking to enter the U.S. market, this free event is definitely for you. Access their on-demand video series to see what the summit is all about, which you can find by going to www.geocomply.com. So in their own head, they are a part of that team. And that's the sentiment we really want to capture in our experience to provide that white hat angle. So I'd love it if you could uh, speak to some strategies there. Yeah, so as we talked about, you have that epic medium calling when you unite people under a common belief or a, a fandom under a team. So I think that's strong. I think that's something you can continue to have fever mechanics that triggers for. And then through that, there's other core drives that can come in place. Now, not all of them are quote unquote white hat, but if you build identity, that's core drive for ownership possession. So it's like, this is a we now. And, you know, 
the, the funny psychological concept of oftentimes uh, for, for college students, at least when they, when their team wins, they're like, oh, we won the championship. But if they lost, they said, oh, they lost you know, our team. They lost the championship. And, and sometimes they'll use even funnier language like, oh, they lost our chance to win championship, even though these students are doing nothing, just watching the TV, but the, the, the athlete, they're training all day long, like really playing, like, what does it mean? The athletes lost the student's chance to win championship, right? But the key is that when you are connected to this team that has a better story, right? And, and usually winning is the great story, right? Uh, or being an underdog is a great story. Then people feel more like they're part of that team. They're connected to the team. And therefore, they're very inspired to, and they'll do everything it takes to make that team more successful. Um, so if they do somehow believe that, hey, more fans for this team, even superstitiously, would make this team win. I mean, that's what people believe when they watch, watch, watch uh, on TV, right? They believe they cheered uh, in front of the TV and they did the, all this, this, the chanting, then their team has a better chance of winning, which is like, I mean, unless besides the, the, the supernatural aspect, it's nonsense, right? So, so you want to foster that kind of excitement and momentum in the app, which is like, hey, by gathering people to become fans of this team and by interacting a lot in this community, sharing ideas, posting memes, for instance, uh, our team will get better. Uh, and even if the team's not winning more, at least the fandom is stronger. So, so yeah, I think building that kind of ownership and identity is going to be a very powerful thing. I'm thinking about how to incorporate something like that into our app. The couple of things that are coming to my mind are leaderboards and, and traders. Um, so leaderboards just like, hey, this is how much that this team has had bet for them, right? So this is how much your fan, your fan members bet for your team. And perhaps something like, you know, hey, this game is coming up. If they're in the playoffs, like. Uh, go and set a record, right, for for how much you've supported your team or something like that. Are there other other ways that you would recommend incorporating these concepts? Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of details on how to implement a leaderboard. There's like a hundred ways to do it incorrectly, but I think one is you can also think about internally, like first team leaderboards, right? Which teams are doing the best, etc. But you can do internal leader, like within the fan base, who's the biggest fan, second fan, but if you're able to split that fan base into little groups that compete against each other, that's even better. So social influence related is S-Core Drive 5. That's in the right side middle of the octagon, which means it could be both white hat or black hat, depending on how you design it. So white hat is collaboration and appreciation. And then black hat is like competition and peer pressure, stuff like that. So the best of both worlds is like team competition, right? So if you have smaller groups within a, a fandom, that compete each other to prove who is there, who is the biggest fan of them all. And not everyone likes to be competitive, but no one likes to drag their team down. So, uh, and you know, they could be a certain variation of the angle, like, oh, we're South country, you're, you're now east of town, you're west of town. We're gonna beat, we're gonna beat you to show we're the best fans, right? Just anything, or, or you know, we're vegetarians and you're like meat eaters, whatever, right? Uh, if if they can find another thing to beat you against each other, that can drive up activity a lot, a lot, and then. And then an aggregation, uh, beating the other team. I think that's that's very very strong. And we just talked about um, triggers, and so you know, obviously the playoff, like, hey, this game is happening, let's go do it. That's like a a good but very generic trigger. Like people expect this, 
So one thing that I mentioned earlier in the, in the in our in our quick quick chat was also triggers that are like more frequent but more rousing. So like oh this other team right this other team fandom they just added thirty seven new members and your team in the past week and your your team your fandom added only one people in the last week and they're like wow that's a problem like soon they're gonna overrun us right they're gonna be like ten thousand people more than we have. And so now it, it makes you want to quickly grab some friends and kind of say, hey, guys, come on, got to solve this problem. So these triggers tend to be a bit more effective because it's a bit more black hat. It's, uh, it's a bit edgier. It, it creates some, some urgency. It's top of mind. But it's all feeding back to that epic median calling of we want to make this team great. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I interpreted that answer is that we would want to do this with teams that have some kind of meaningful rivalry. If the teams have no real relation, then probably they just wouldn't care. Is that right? Yeah. Like if uh, there's a competition between like the Chow family, like my family of like five people against some frogs in the pond, we don't, obviously we wouldn't care. Right. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter what the competition is, jumping, doing math. Like we just wouldn't care because there, there's no meaningful comparison. But if it's like the the Chow family versus the Ling family down the street, then sure. Or against another uh, family that's that's uh, reputable in the gamification world, then sure, right? It's like you gotta you gotta find this kind of comparison, right? and and then there's that rivalry. Yeah, I can add some current flavor to this. Uh, it would show up. So currently we're in the NBA playoffs and the, the Warriors and the Grizzlies have a budding rivalry, so to speak. Warriors are in California. The Grizzlies are in Tennessee. Within the context of our app, sports betting is legal in Tennessee, but not California. So perhaps all the Grizzlies fans could come together in Tennessee and within Bets Booster, you know, they're dominating the Warriors because all of the Warriors fans can't bet yet. And so that would be one implementation of like the, the Grizzlies are dominating the Warriors on the leaderboard. For us, oh, yeah. and that's satisfying oh, yeah. the Grizzly fans. Yeah, and you want to make up a lot of press release, like any anything that you can show that Grizzlies are better than Warriors beating the Warriors. They love it. They want to consume. They want to share about it, right? And so it's like, it's like, oh, okay, Grizz, Grizzly, 10,000 people, Warriors, zero people. Like, yeah, exactly. Or something, yeah, something like that. Yeah, so I, I'd, I would push like more press and social media on, on themes like that. Yeah. And one, one last follow-up from me, again, connecting the dots to the referral flow. Uh, Would it make more sorry, sense? Sorry. Uh, one thing to be concerned about as a, as a effect is if this press reaches a lot of people in California, the Warriors fans, right? They have to, they, there's nothing they can do to solve this problem. So they're going to go into denial. They'll say like, hey, look, we're actually better because we, we, California, you can't do the sports betting. And so therefore we're better people. It's a better state, right? So they have to root themselves in not being able to do it is a strength. In which case, I'm sure one day you'd like to have people in California participate more. And if they, I mean, this if it's long, if it's if it's like long in the future and there's no more triggers, it probably wouldn't matter. But if it keeps happening again and again, then they build up this internal identity that oh, we're just superior people because we don't do sports betting. So that's something to be wary about for the long term. But I think in this case, I still rec I still think it's a good strategy. I think you should do it. But I think you should uh, obviously try to mitigate some of that exposure to to warrior fans. And because if they are able to join, then it's a different story, right? They're like, oh, 
that sucks. We're all falling behind. We need to get our people to join and, and, and do these sports betting. But if they're not able to, then they have to go in denial, right? Then it's like, that's the whole thing's lame and stupid because there's no, there's, there's no desired action there. So I would limit exposure of this thing to, to the Warriors group and then have the Grizzlies all see why they're better. Right. Okay. So connecting this into the referral, and I think this is, we've gone over this implicitly, but I want to bring it to the surface. We've been talking about this uh, scenario as a volume-based leaderboard where you can have 10,000 10, Grizzlies fans, and that's just better than the, the Warriors hypothetically because they don't have as many people. So would you recommend not sort of introducing artificial parity in this scenario? I would have as many leaderboards as you can. We call them micro leaderboards because the whole idea of a leaderboard is you want to make people feel accomplished, right? The problem is usually only the top you know, 5, 10 percentile feel accomplished, the mid percentile feel kind of meh, and then the bottom feel demoralized and sometimes they give up. And so the idea is that the more micro leaderboards you have, the more chances people have to be a you know, top 10%. So when I talk about micro leaderboards, I'm like, you know, first of all, time period, like for today, this week, this month, all time, then there's like maybe different status level, like in Octalysis Prime, my education platform, there's like blue, blue status, orange status, or, you know, people go platinum and gold, silver. And then there's various activities, like you said, like, oh, most amount of fans, most uh, biggest bets, total, total bets, biggest bets, biggest wins, all that stuff. And so... As you intermix these variables, you can create all sorts of leaderboards, right? So, so people's like, wow, I'm like among the bronze status losers. And just for today, I have the, I'm on, I'm like number one in the biggest bet, right? And they feel accomplished because they're number one at something and they take a screenshot and share with their friends. So I recommend as having as many of these micro leaderboards as possible. Uh, Autotolysis Prime, I think we, have the most advanced leaderboard in the world as far as what I've seen out there because we also have an algorithm that calculates which leaderboard out of all the leaderboards out there, like over 100 micro leaderboards, that they're ranking the highest. So when they click leaderboard, we're not going to first show them the all-time highs and they just feel depressed. It's first going to load that leaderboard that they rank the best at and be like, wow, I had no idea I was like number two in like in bets wins for this month. That's cool. Right. So you feel first feel accomplished. And then if you want to maneuver and go to the all time highs and feel sad about it, that's up to you. But we want to connect the acts of looking at the leaderboard to feeling happy and accomplished. And so so, again, you want to maximize the chance people are on the top 10 and you want to guide them there as much as possible. Brilliant. So really illuminating. Like you gave me a lot more concrete direction on how to incorporate some of this stuff in the best picture. Thank you. You're welcome. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about all this. It's a lot of fun. I think it's impactful. So yeah, love to see it in action a lot more. All right, guys, I'll, I'll jump in here at this point. And uh, I guess just, you know, for me sitting here listening to all of this over the last half hour or so, I dare say that was a masterclass in gamification. And I personally just learned a ton. So thanks to all three of you for an engaging and insightful discussion on the topic. Yukai, for anybody listening that might want to learn more about gamification and potentially get in touch with yourself or your team, where can you point them towards to do uh, all of that? Yeah, the most common place is uh, my blog, yukaichow.com. Uh, if you Google gamification framework or gamification expert, it should be the top result. Uh, I have a TEDx talk so on YouTube. So if you go, if you type gamification TED on YouTube, you'll find it. I uh, also have my book, Actionable Gamification. If you go to Amazon and search for the word gamification, it should be the first result too. And then that will lead you to all the other places. 
Awesome. Well, I'll drop links in the show notes to all of those that you just mentioned. And thank you again for joining us today, Yukai. And to everybody listening, thank you for checking out this episode on gamification. We'll be back next week with episode four of Betting On It. So we'll see you again then. Yeah.